0: relevant to a new thing I'm going to talk about. Uh, we spoke about the fact that Halakha does differentiate theoretically between the Kisuvah of a virgin and the Kisuvah of a non-virgin. What's Oh, kasuva, okay, this, that's the marriage contract when people get married. And again, I, I, so I have to refer you to last week. So you can get a recording of it because you went through uh, almost line by line of the marriage contract. And uh, this actually means that technically, from a strict halachic standpoint, uh, if a woman had uh, sexual relations, either with the guy that she's marrying or with anybody, Jew or boy, uh, before she was married, uh, even if she was not divorced or widowed, but it was just uh, outside of marriage, the ketuvah would actually have to be written differently. But uh, the problem is, of course, that this can sometimes create embarrassment because and most people don't understand the Ketubah, they don't notice it, but some people do notice it. And uh, a woman and her, now the Chasne and the Kala might understandably not want something to be publicized because the Ketubah is read in the marriage itself. So I had mentioned to you that there are two solutions that different rabbis employ in order to spare embarrassment. Uh, one position is, That the ketubah is actually written the way it's, uh, a regular ketubah is written, meaning to say, in order to spare embarrassment, we simply write it the way it is, and as long as the groom has agreed to the higher amount of money, then who cares, it's nobody else's business, as long as the groom has agreed, which means to say the ketubah is simply written the same way it would be written for a virgin, that's position number one. Position number two is you're not allowed to lie in the ketubah. The ketubah has to be written truthfully but when it's read by the rabbi the rabbi either mumbles so no one understands or the rabbi reads it. He'd have to know it by heart a little bit. He reads it like a regular ketubah. In other words, the difference between the two positions is that position number one actually changes the written text. Position number two maintains the written text but allows it to be read differently than it's written. Uh, The problem with position number two is that if you have an artistic ketubah and you like to hang it on your wall, then it may happen that somebody later will read the ketubah and it may be embarrassing at that point, yeah?
1: If people know the method of the second option, won't they realize what's happening?
0: Not, not really, because not everybody sees the ketuba. meaning just, if I read the ksuva and I read it as if it was the ksuva of a virgin, uh, you know, the audience doesn't, doesn't see the text of the ketuba. They, they just hear what I, what I read. Now you're saying if I mumble it, it looks... Yeah. Like, th- that might be so, that might be so, but, but the truth of the matter is some people do read fast, meaning mumbling or reading fast is not always an indicator of an irregularity. It can sometimes be the way somebody talks. And as I say, if he's a little more skillful, he can read slowly and he could read it as if he's reading something else. he would have to know it a little by heart, a little bit. See what I'm saying? In other words, he would read it the same as people wouldn't see. Okay. So now let me mention an analogous area. All of you know, I'm sure you've gone to, Sheva Brachot, right? Very exciting, Sheva Brachot. That uh, under the chuppah, there are seven blessings that are recited that bless the bride and the groom. That's under the chuppah. And then at the end of the wedding meal, there are also going to be Sheva Brachos. Right, so that you'll always have. But then for a whole week, a whole week after the wedding, uh, there will be special meals with a minion. You have to have a minion. And at the end of benching of the Birkat hamazon, there's going to be Sheva Brachos. So Sheva Brachos goes on for a week. Now, one little thing about Sheva Brachos people don't realize. Everybody thinks a Chosna nakala have to have a special Sheva Brachos celebration every single day of the seven days. Now, if you, if you enjoy it, if it's a pleasure for you, then go ahead and have it. You know, why not? I mean, you're certainly allowed to have it. But for some people, it can be quite exhausting. You know, you just got married. And you got to schlep here, and you got to schlep here, and you got to get dressed up, and you got to, you know, you, you know, a newly married couple might like to have pizza at home, without having to go to a big party every night. So it's important to know that although it is the virtual universal custom in the Orthodox community that we make Sheva brachos every single night, and sometimes even more than once a day, even for lunch or something like that, that is the custom, and that your friends are going to want to do that for you for sure. You need to know that halakhically, you do not have an obligation to have a Sheva Brachas every day. If someone calls and says, Tuesday, two days after your wedding, Tuesday night, we're gonna make this great, fantastic party, you have the right to say, uh, my husband and I decided we would like to just stay home tonight. Now, I warn, I'll warn you, your friends will think you're crazy, including your Rabbi, your and friends, uh, but halakhically, you do have that right. It is an absolute misconception that you're obligated to have a Sheva Brachos every night. And in fact, uh, in Eretz Israel and in Europe, the custom was not to. Now that may have been because of poverty, uh, you know, I, I admit that, but the idea that every night there had to be a big Sheva Brachos was simply not the case. However, if you want it, if you like it, if you enjoy it, go ahead. I mean, uh, you can have it uh, five times a day if you want. If, and if somebody's willing to put you up and, and do it five times a day for you, Uh, The only requirement is that there be at least a minion. There have to be ten men. And there also be a requirement that for each meal there has to be somebody that wasn't at the other meals. Meaning there has to be a new face, so to speak, every time. So that would mean you can't just invite the people who are at your wedding to your shabbat Brachos because they would not qualify as new people. So you need one new person at every Sheva Brachos celebration, except for Shabbos, because Shabbos is considered to be the new face. So a Sheva Brachot on Shabbos, no matter how many times you do it, you can do it three times on Shabbos, each meal if you want. Uh, Shabbos does not need what is called panim, that's the phrase, panim chadashot. Panim chadashot means a new face, and that is a requirement for all Sheva Brachos, Except for the Shabbat brachos that you make on on Shabbos. and I'm sure I'm, I'm sure I'll, I can ask you. Everybody here has probably been to a Shabbat. Really haven't been. Okay, so it's, it's very nice. You know, sometimes they have instrumental uh, music. Sometimes they don't. But you know, people dance, people sing. Uh, it's very very enjoyable. They're very Torah. But as they say, for a Khassan and a Kawa it may be exhausting. It may you know you know the first one is great and the second one is great. By the time it's the fifth one. No, you are a little tired and you do have the right to skip a skip a day, yeah
1: Is there any halachic requirement? Like do you have to have at least one?
0: Uh, yes, there is a requirement and the one is at the wedding and at the wedding meal
1: So you have two
0: So, actually you'll always have two You'll always have two uh, Anything else is really optional, there's no requirement Now again, if you think about this, this is a very logical rule because the whole idea of Sheva Brachos is simcha to give the bride and the groom joy in their marriage, so it has to be something that they enjoy, right? they don't enjoy, so uh, what's the point? You're going to enjoy this if, if it kills you, you know. You know, we don't uh, impose joy on people in that particular way. But as I said, I do want to warn you that your friends will think you're crazy. So you have to decide whether you want to take that risk. Yeah.
2: If you don't do a day, it's not like
0: you add on another day. No, 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 no. It, end, it ends when it ends. Right, it's one week. You know, you don't get seven days, and I want to, you know, I want to scatter it throughout the six months. It's a week, and uh, if you miss a day, then you'll have one less. Yeah. Um. Someone said something
2: that like for the year after the marriage or something that like I'm young but some of the time you can do the Shiva breakfast at marriage
0: Oh, yeah, well, time? is that thing? Uh, no, no. We, it is true. It is true that the first year of your marriage is a very important year. Uh, it's a year of togetherness. It's a year of building a relationship, and according to halacha, one spouse should try not to travel out of town overnight without the other spouse for that entire year. Uh, you try. You know, if you, if you have to go, you have to go. That's called Shona rishona. Uh, but lamaisa, uh, practically, we do not recite any any shavuot uh, brachos after the week. Yeah. Did you quit? Uh, our custom is not to. I mean, there are some opinions that would allow it, but. Uh, we do not follow, follow those opinions. Uh, yeah? Um, what
2: about someone who's had a previous marriage? So
0: that's what I'm going to talk about. That's actually why I'm bringing this up. So now I wanna... Yeah, I'll bring it up. Yeah, yeah. Um, just about the new faces. Yeah. So at
3: every meal, it has to be a new face who hasn't been at any at the wedding or any of the previous... That's days. correct.
0: That's correct. You need one new man, really, because he has to be part of the minion.
3: Mm.
0: Now, he can come in... Now, something... You can just invite him for dessert. See, this is interesting. Sheva Brachos is normally a full meal where you people wash on bread, and they recite benching, mm-hmm. and the sheva brachas are said after benching, that's how it works. Uh, now sometimes you really, you know, you might be short in terms of seating or people you could invite, or even money, so the, the, both the minion and uh, the panim chadashos can just come in for dessert, meaning to say you can have a sheva brachas with five people washing and benching, and then you invite five more people uh, for dessert, and the Panam Kedashas can also be a person that comes in for dessert. He doesn't have to be there for the entire meal. And you can also just
3: pull a stranger off the street and be like, you uh, that, 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 that is
0: actually done. That is, that, that's, uh, sometimes uh, they'll just come and I'll say, hey, yeah. come yeah. on in, I we need you. The yeah. How do you need to do you, you to do that? that? You
1: know, Why need that?
0: that? So the, the logic basically is that the joy is enhanced, we consider it to be, even though it's a little funny when he's a stranger, but the joy is enhanced when more people Get involved in the Simch. It's not like an old hat already. It's not like I've done, been there, done that. Uh, But there's kind of a a new joy in in getting new people involved. I'll give you an analogy, nothing to do with weddings. Mishloach Manos, everyone knows what that is. On Purim, we send gifts of food to uh, people. So the halacha actually is that it's best to do it by making a shaliyach, meaning if I want to give you shaluch manos, instead of my giving you shaluch manos, I would ask you to give to to you. Now why do you do that? Because you want to get more people involved, because the more people that are involved, the greater the friendship and the camaraderie. So instead of A giving it to B, A asks C to give it to B, and that way you have three people involved. And that is kind of that is considered to be something that creates a greater camaraderie and a greater sense of friendship. Uh, so this is a similar idea that panim chadashos is, is to increase the joy by involving uh, other other people. And as they say, I I hear you. I, I hear you. In other words, this, this would this would make sense <laughs> if it would be a friend <laughs> who would be a friend who couldn't make the wedding, right? That's the good yeah. panim chadashos. So you're so happy to have them come to the celebration, it's a little strange, but, but the truth of the matter is, as students of Hasidus, uh, you know, if you absorb the idea that uh, every Jew is so precious and beloved, and we, we, we don't have that, those feelings, but you know, wow, another Jew is in my, my, my wedding celebration. That is supposed to be a big simcha for you, even though, you know, we don't unfortunately always have those types of feelings. Yeah?
3: So, I uh... Like for the seven days after the wedding? Yep. And just, if you
1: have, you don't need to, but if you make like the extra celebrations, And yep. you say the seven brachos again? That, that, that's
0: correct. In other words, you can have theoret- theoretically, now almost nobody does this, people have one every night.
2: But, you one bracha every night? Or no, 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 no,
0: you say all seven every time. But, if you, but theoretically, you can have a lunch of brachos, and you can have a dinner one, you can even have a breakfast one, and every single time, if you have a minion with a new face, yeah. and a minion and a new face, you recite all the seven brachas <coughs> after benching. There's benching and then all the seven brachas. So you
2: can breaks. actually do, like, ten shot like you, 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 Yeah,
0: you can, you can do uh, 25 shot depending on how you count it. Do you want
3: to you, explain what you, I had Yeah, it? yeah. Do you want to explain think you... I'm first, just yeah. wondering, do the and, and kala both need to be there...
0: Yes, that's very interesting. Uh, Let me put it this way. Uh, One of them has to be there. (laughs) Uh, You don't need both, actually. So it is very, very interesting that there are occasions in which one is not well. Now, it would seem to me if one is not well, the most logical thing would be to stay at home and not have it, which you're allowed to do. But let's say there was a lot of planning. It was a very big party. So one might come without the other and they can still say sheva brachot. You can't, you can't have, have a wedding with only one, but you can have a sheva brachot with only one. <laughs> right. Yeah. But like he could go
3: yeah, out exactly. with his friends and she goes out with her friends meaning he and his friends can say
0: uh, yeah, 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 but I, I think that's kind of defeats the purpose. I would not encourage that. I mean technically you're right. But, you know, you're celebrating a wedding. So Why you ce- you celebrate a wedding by each one making their own separate uh, party. <laughs> it's kind of the opposite of what you're celebrating.
3: It's an Bachelor.
0: Yeah, yeah. Do you
3: want to explain what Sheva Brachot
0: are? Okay, okay. So the truth is, any sitter will tell you. The word Sheva Brachot, or Brachot, depending on how you pronounce it, just means seven blessings, that's all. And they're recited uh, under the chuppah, they're recited at the wedding meal, and they're recited the whole week, as we just described. And essentially, the first one is just blessing God for a cup of wine you know that's how that starts it and then the second one I'll, I'll tell you exactly what each one says the second one simply declares that all of the world is for the glory of Hashem that's a very general statement the third says thank you Hashem for creating human beings because without human beings there wouldn't be men and women and then the next one says thank you Hashem for creating men and women who come together as a unit and then uh, that's what that's four. Uh the uh, the fifth one uh, then says may the couple have the joy that God gave Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden mm-hmm. the sixth is very interesting the sixth uh, is I'm sorry I'm sorry I missed up that's the sixth the The fifth is actually a bracha that's uh, asking for the rebuilding of Jerusalem it's very interesting just as we break a glass why do we break a glass at a wedding because we want to remember the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash at our highest joy. So in the Sheva Brachos, one of the blessings is not about the bride and groom. One of the blessings is about the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Uh, and then the seventh bracha, which is the longest bracha, and people sing in the middle of that, uh, is uh, God created uh, joy and jubilation, the bride and the groom. may God, uh, May we hear once again in the streets of Jerusalem the voice of the groom and the bride and children playing and men and women singing, Blessed art you Hashem, that brings joy to the chasen and the Kalam. Okay, those are the seven, seven brachos. And under the chuppah after the sheva brachos, that's when the glass is broken. Uh, that's the only time in. The, the other sheva brachos you don't break anything. Yeah. Uh,
2: so when
1: the
0: temple is rebuilt, yeah. are we going to
2: stop doing that at weddings?
0: Uh, That's very, very interesting. You're asking a very good question. Are we going to go down to six brachos? (laughs) That's a good one. I I don't know. I really don't know. Um, That bracha, well, I can tell you that bracha will not be said. The
2: stomping of the glass. The
0: the stomping of the glass will not be there, of course. Uh, The question becomes whether there'll be an alternative bracha that'll be substituted. My guess is yes, and the reason I say that is, there is a mystical significance in the number seven that we don't want to get rid of because seven represents the totality of creation, the six days of creation culminating in the Shabbos. And as a result, even if we're not going to be able to say one of those blessings, we're, we're, we're going to want to keep the number seven there. So my guess is there'll be, there'll be an alternative uh, bracha that'll be there. I
2: imagine there would be something about continued... That,
0: that's correct, that's correct. You could, you could change any bracha praying for the restoration could be turned into a bracha expressing gratitude Mm -hmm. and prayer that may it be continued. That's correct. Yeah. So
2: you can only say the brachas if there's a minion and a new person. That's correct. A new man. A new
0: man who is part of the minion. That's correct.
2: So you can't even say them if there were 10 people that, and, that's, men and a minion, but.
0: That's correct. A minion is not enough. The two requirements are minion plus new face, who could be part of the minion. Except on Shabbos, you still need a minion, but you don't need the new face. But
2: Shabbos
0: is a Shabbos queen. Right. Uh, um, well, that's interesting. Uh, well, you know, it is a little funny because Shabbos is, uh, is bisexual in the sense that Shabbos is like the wife of God but we are like the wife of Shabbos. So Shabbos is both a queen and a king at the same, at the same time. Um, okay. Uh, so now, let me just mention the question that was raised. Again, I, I have to go from more of the uh, joyous to more of the practical. and That is, how do all these rules work when there has been a prior sexual history? Either the woman or the man, in this case. Married before, divorced, widowed, or had sexual relations or had sexual relations with each other. They were living together before they had a kosher marriage. How does that impact uh, Sheva Brachos? So let me first start off with the, with the simple halacha. The simple halacha is no matter what the configuration, we always recite Sheva Brachos under the chuppah and at the wedding meal. That, that never changes. So no matter what the situation, you are guaranteed sheva brachas under the chuppah and sheva brachas at the end of the wedding meal, right? That's not the the problem. Now, vis-a-vis the week, we have the following halacha. If both parties, both parties, man and woman, were married before, this is if both parties were married before, we do not, and that either they were divorced or widowed, we do not have Sheva Brachos beyond that point. Only the chuppah... That
2: also include just sexual relations. No, no, I'll I'll
0: get to that. I'm I'm, I'm very specific right now. I'll get to sexual relations. If both of them were married before, both were married before, then we only have Sheva Brachos at uh, at the chuppah and at the wedding meal. If one was married before and the other was not and it makes no difference man or woman then you have full Sheva Brachos for an entire week so this is not like the Ketubah the Ketubah amount depended totally on the woman's situation Sheva Brachos is different Sheva Brachos is only if both were married now the question then becomes what if uh, they were sexually active either with either with each other or with other people but they were not married does that affect uh, Sheva Brachos? Now, again, this is only a question if both, because if only one, then it's not going to be worse than being married, right? Let's say both were sexually active. So here, uh, the halacha is, it's a big, well, this is a machlokas. This is actually a, a well known machlokas between two of How the great.
2: I'm
0: sorry. A machlokas just means an argument. Machlokas is a word that uh, is ubiquitous. In halachic discussion, in fact, I always tell people: if you're taking a halacha test and you don't know the answer to the question,
3: <laughs>
2: put
0: down put down machlokes and you will <laughs> be right. You will be correct, <laughs> uh, because there are many, many disputed areas in halacha. And this is a dispute: uh, if both parties were sexually active, uh, but we actually paskin, we we rule that as long as it wasn't a marriage as long as it was not a marriage, you have a week of Sheva Okay, So the only time there would be a disqualification of not doing Sheva is only if both, both, not one, both parties were married. Now by married, I mean halachically married. Since if one was married to a non-Jew, that's not a valid marriage, that is not treated like a marriage. And therefore if both parties had been with non-Jewish spouses, they would have Sheva right? They would have because in the eye, for the whole week because in the eyes of Jewish law, they were not married. Okay, so that's kind of just to know generally uh, how this works. And the key point to remember is, unlike the ketubah, which is focused on the woman's status, this is a bilateral thing. And uh, that therefore means if they were living together before they decided to get married, they would still have, we paskin, a full Sheva brachot, because if they were not married, they were simply sexual partners, they are permitted to have uh, seven days of Sheva brachot. Yeah.
1: What is the reason that someone's like marriage or sexual history makes a difference to the Sheva brachot?
0: So the concept is this. The concept is, again, it's maybe a strange idea, is that... If somebody already had certain in fact this is one of the arguments against premarital relations. You become jaded. It's less exciting. The anticipation of a new relationship is less moving to you because there are aspects of it you've already experienced. So there there is a logic, so to speak, that if it's not the pivotal new experience, the joy is a little less. So the machlokas is some say no, no, because the Sheva Brachos is an expression of the joy in the heart of the bride. Enjoy. and the girl. Of, co- of course there is, of course I'm there is, but just it's just not uh, at the highest... In fact, this is one of the standard arguments people give, both within Jew- the Jewish world and even in the secular world, against uh, living uh, with people before marriage, because they say it, it takes away some of the, uh, whatever, some of the passion, some of the excitement in getting married. And in fact, if you study Teirat mishpacha, the laws of family purity... You might come across the idea that separating for a uh, twelve days a month uh, actually is like uh, kindles a certain excitement in the uh, in the reunion, uh, and therefore it actually keeps a romance in a stronger, more intense way. Now again, th- these ideas do not reflect everybody's experience. I'm not suggesting everybody feels this way, everybody experiences uh, things this way. That's very true. That people experience things differently. Just like you said before, hey, that guy I never spoke to who lives across the street, I'm not so happy he's at my Shubha breakfast. it doesn't you know, mm-hmm. make me so excited. But in, in some cases, and in many cases, it does kind of add to the symptom, and the halakha is based on those assumptions. Yeah?
3: So for someone, like in my parents' situation, and I know a lot of like couples that become more observant, yes. they had four children before they Got yep. a Ketubah, in the Ketubah wedding. Yep. So at that wedding, are they considered to have been married before? Because like, they were like they, they were allowed to be together.
0: Yes, so this is a God very, Ketubha. very excellent question. Uh, and it's a question that, that is a very common question, actually, because uh, many people uh, got married either civilly or non-halakhically conservative or reformed marriage. Uh, they have children, and the children are not illegitimate, God forbid, because, but, but nevertheless, the marriage is not halachically valid. And then they decide uh, later uh, to become either more religious, or even if they don't become more religious, they want a halachic marriage mm-hmm. with a ketubah. And the question becomes, oh, do we have uh, sheva brachas for them? Now, under the chuppah and at the wedding meal, for sure you do. That's not rest. the question. But what about the rest of the week? So based on what I said the logic would be that they should have Shavu Brachos because their living together was not a marriage.
3: It wasn't considered a marriage.
0: That, that would be the logic of what I said. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, the custom under those circumstances is not to uh, make a Shavu Brachos for the whole week because it's kind of what might be called a halachic common law marriage, meaning to say since they live together not as single people, they live together with the intention of marriage. So even if it wasn't a halachic marriage, it has some effect
2: mm-hmm.
0: with respect that we don't do sheva for the week. So that's why the common situation of m- long-married couples who get a halachic marriage is different than uh, a, a man and a woman just living together knowing that right. they're not, knowing that they're not married. So even though analytically you could treat them as exactly the same, uh, we do not. I myself, uh, I mean again, any, any Chabad shaliach has done this many times and I myself have uh, done marriages for Chabad Shaluchim as well where you have older couples, I mean I don't mean very old, you know, whatever, 40s, 30s whatever it is, who decided to have halachic marriage and often they already have children mm-hmm. uh, and uh, universally we do not do a Sheva Brachot beyond the Chuppah and the wedding the wedding meal
2: yeah. If it's a convert wedding they got married before um, and then they both decided to convert, did they
0: do Yes, so that's a, that, that's a good question. Uh, it would appear that they would, because basically uh, that was not, that was different than the Jewish couple that's living together as a, a married couple. This is, uh, is not considered a marriage at all in the eyes of halakha. Okay, now let me, uh, yeah. What, so
2: what is the what difference in halacha with like a conservative ketubah? And also, like, what uh, what's important about having... Like, I don't know what my parents... What kind of... I'm going to ask them, like, I don't even know who officiated their wedding, but, like, I grew up conservative, so I don't yeah. know. They have, like, a tube on the wall, but yeah. I don't know. So, like,
0: um, you know, I'm speaking in a little bit of generalities. You know, I, I don't mean to imply... You know, I, I I said a few times, I think... Conservative reform weddings are not halachically valid. Uh, That is an oversimplification. I I, I don't mean to say that exactly. Um, A conservative reform wedding may be halachically invalid, and in many cases likely to be so, but not necessarily so. Number one, uh, particularly in the conservative movement, there are a number of conservative rabbis who are actually very observant of halacha. They would not drive on Shabbos. uh, they're, They're really... Orthodox, except for the fact that their job is, you know, they, they work in a conservative synagogue. That's less so in the reform movement, but in the conservative movement, for sure, for sure, there are right-wing conservative rabbis. Uh, secondly, you have to keep in mind the following idea. What makes a wedding kosher is not the rabbi. What makes the wedding kosher are the witnesses who are designated. They are the most... People don't realize this. People think the rabbi is the big deal, it's not really the rabbi, that's, the rabbi is the supervisor. The rabbi is the one who makes sure everything is doing okay. But the people that absolutely have to be uh, observant are the two witnesses who see the giving of the ring and sign the k'suvah. Now it's very possible that even at a conservative or Reform wedding, the witnesses might be kosher if you have Shomer Shabbos friends. So the wedding uh, could very well be kosher. I can't tell you one way or the other. Uh, the good news is, even if it's not a kosher wedding, it does not affect you, meaning the offspring of such a wedding is still a regular kosher Jew, so there's no disability, but if your parents or anyone uh, wants to talk to a rabbi, with uh, a chabad shaliyach, or any rabbi, you know, the rabbi could determine whether they have a kosher wedding, or whether they need to have uh, another ceremony again. So they
2: would have another ceremony to, like, make it uh, a truly halach marriage? That's correct. And-
0: Because, like, that's the important thing to do. Well, yeah, it's it's proper for Jewish people to be united by a halachic marriage. That is certainly a proper thing. Now, Baruch Hashem, it does not affect the status of the children. The children are not illegitimate. They don't have any problem. That's perfectly fine. But just in terms of the couple themselves, uh, it is uh, considered to be a holy event to be joined in a halachically valid, valid marriage so for those people that get a second ketubah then they would like the first one's nullified yeah they would rip, either rip up the first one or write, oh, well the first one is pretty okay, no no, so so they don't have to rip it up <laughs> they, but they, they could write on the back on the back of it uh, this is null and void so you can, they can keep it artistically they could still keep it but there would have to be a notation that it is no longer valid yeah uh, do you know how the actual content would differ between like a reform and a Okay, so, so I, I, you know, I'd have to check. Uh, I will tell you one thing that a conservative Ketuvah has, which is very interesting, and in reality an Orthodox Ketuvah could have this as well, but it doesn't, is they do have uh, a clause in the conservative Ketuvah, which is called the Lieberman Clause. The Lieberman Clause because Rabbi Shoal Lieberman was the head of the Jewish Theological Seminary and he was a big Talmud Chacham and he drafted a clause that basically says in the event of marital discord uh, the groom agrees to give a get so the woman will not be stranded and we'll talk about that uh, extensively Uh, now the orthodox movement does have prenuptial agreements which may say the same thing but we don't put it in the ketubah the conservative uh, ketubah does have it Now my guess is I'd have to look at the Reform ketubah. My guess is the Reform ketubah probably gets rid of all of the monetary things and turn it into a document about love and romance and commitment, which is not a ketubah at all. It's just a general romantic statement about love and marriage. That's my guess, but I'll I'll try to check for you exactly uh, what is the text of a a Reform ketubah. There probably is not a uniform text, by the way. Probably you could use whatever text you want. Well,
2: they probably do it also for like.
0: Well, they do it for non-Jews, they do it for gays, they do it for, yeah, I mean, uh, the whole, <laughs> the, yeah. Kasubas now come in many, many flavors right, right, because right. of the different types of relationships that, that people have. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, it's a bit of a topic of sugar,
2: offers, but on weddings, are children allowed to be at their parents' wedding? If it's a, um,
0: okay, so this is interesting. Uh, uh, so so, so it, may, it may very well, very much depend. Uh, if, for example, somebody's widowed and they're getting married as an older person and the children are already adults, uh, then there's nothing wrong with them coming to the wedding. That's a proper thing. Uh, if, on the other hand, there was a divorce and there's still a mother around, so to speak, or a father around, and you invite the kids, and that may be creating animosity with the other parent, uh, you have to be a little careful. So it's not forbidden for children to come to a parent's wedding, but, 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 but a parent needs to be sensitive as to whether this would alienate or upset unduly the other parent or sometimes upset the child as well if a child is younger and they remember mommy and uh, daddy is getting married to another person or, or vice versa whatever it would be you know there may be a little bit of of of, of trauma so this is something that you got to think about uh halacha is not going to prohibit it but you have to think about uh Will it hurt the children in any way? Will it antagonize the other spouse in a way that I shouldn't antagonize the other spouse? So those are the things to to think about. Uh, yeah, I'm talking to you. Yeah. yeah.
3: So just can kind of go off that one. So if
1: a couple has a child before they get married, then
0: there's no problem with. There is no problem. He's child. a kosher. He's a kosher
3: Jew. Coming to the wedding? I was at my parents'. Yes, wedding. that's correct. That's correct. Horrible. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Did you <laughs> want to say? Horrible. Yeah.
3: So
1: are the two are the two witnesses that make a wedding kosher? Should I, is it really two or is it four? Because of the yich, walking to the
0: yichud. So, so well, well uh, the, the yeah, it would be four. But, but 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 the point basically is you should you should actually use the same witnesses, meaning to say oh, the should The use two different witnesses. No, no, I, I, I thought I did say the uh, the two witnesses under the chuppah should be the same two witnesses for the yichud, for they the seclusion. Uh, they should be. They they don't have to be, but they should be. Now, the witnesses for the ketubah can be different witnesses. But wait, they can also right. be the same. Huh?
1: That's what I thought you... Wait, okay, they can be different, but they should be the same? Wait, you
0: need no, 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 no. Uh, the, the ketubah can be different witnesses. They don't have to be the same. See, see, in other words, what I'm saying is there are actually three things you need witnesses for. You need witnesses who sign, they sign in Hebrew, the ketubah. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: You need witnesses under the chuppah who witness the chatan giving the kala a ring. And you need witnesses for the yichud, that means after the chuppah, when the chasan and the kala go into seclusion and they have what you call, I mean, mean, they don't consummate the marriage then, rest assured, but it's a symbolic... (laughs) It's a symbolic type of consummation that they share private time together. So you need witnesses at each of those three stages. Optimally, the chuppah and the yichut witnesses should be the same. The ketubah can be different. You don't, you don't have to worry about that at all. Uh, however, if you, want to, if you have a lot of people to honor, you can actually honor...
1: So you could do six.
0: You can do six, Yeah. So you can have as little as two. I can use the same two for everything. And I can have as many as six. Okay? Actually, there's another thing too, but we didn't even talk about it. There is something called a Tanoim, which is the engagement contract. Some people don't do it, but that would add another two there. That's like you formally get engaged right before the wedding. Okay, but uh, that, that's kind of optional.
2: Yeah? If there's a Jewish couple that didn't have a lot of a wedding? Yep. Are they obligated to abide by the laws of
0: like family purity? Absolutely so. And in fact, that raises a fascinating question. I, I a question that I, I dealt with myself. Imagine you have a couple who are, the old phrase used to be living in sin. Right? They're literally <laughs> not married. Right? Now, should I advise the woman that she should still go to the mikveh and keep the laws of family purity. In fact, I should, because the sin of cohabiting when a woman is in a state of of nida is a much, much greater sin than having relations outside of marriage. So as a result, even if relations outside of marriage are not halakhically proper, it is still much, much better that she go to the mikveh. Uh, The concept is because nida is a very, nida is a very, very severe aveira. Having relations outside of marriage is, is an aveira. It is an aveira, but it's not as, it is not as severe. And this gives rise to the idea that if somebody is gonna sin, it's a very interesting philosophical question, they're gonna sin, they're gonna do something wrong. Should I at least try to make it a lesser transgression rather than a greater transgression? Now, some people disagree. Some people say, hey, if they're sinning, you know, I don't have to have mercy. I don't have to have compassion on them. Then that's their problem. Others say that even if they're sinning, better to minimize the sin instead of maximize the sin. So uh, there is a logic in advising single people to go to the mikvah even though they're in a relationship that's not, not proper. Yeah.
1: So ideally, you should have the same two witnesses for ketuba signing and.
0: No, no, no. The ketuba can always be separate. I, the oh, for, for the ring for the chuppah okay. and for the yichud. Yeah, the ketuba can be can be separate. That's a separate thing. Yeah. Um, okay. You okay, first. Yeah. I have a question from like a little
2: bit back.
0: Yeah.
2: Oh, okay. So if you, if it's a second marriage for one of your parents. There's like kids involved, yeah. You're gonna hurt what like either not going, you're gonna make someone upset, and going, you're going to make the other person upset in some cases. How do you
0: choose who to like? Well, when you say how do you choose, it depends who the you is. I mean, who, who, is, who is the other talking about? I mean, meaning to say, let's assume that I'm the one that's getting married a second time, so I have to make a decision do I want my children to be present? But
2: what if you want them, but the ex- Want
0: them. Oh, so so who who, who who resolves? Well, what can I tell you? I mean,
2: <laughs> it, okay,
0: it, it it actually depends on who has custody that day. I mean, listen, let's imagine. I mean, it's a very practical question. Uh, most most divorces have joint custody, which, right? Which means to say, half of the time, most, half the time, the kids are with one parent and half the time with the other parent. So, frankly, it all depends on what day you're getting married. Meaning, if you're getting married on your day, then legally you have the right to take your kids where you want to take them. Uh, if they're getting married on her day, you know, the other person's day, then she doesn't have to give, give you the kids. Now, that's not, that's not giving you a basis for decision. I'm just, if you're, if you're asking me practically who is going to decide it, it's whoever has custody on the day of the wedding. But I don't want to make it a power struggle. I mean, often it might be a power struggle. I, I would hope that both parents would give thought as to what is best for the, uh, for the children. That's how you make these decisions. Yeah? I thought that it
2: was halakhicly not okay for a single woman to go to the mikvah, even though she is living with someone
1: that it's not considered the top of Pame, impurity the
0: so, so, as I say, this is a machlokas, so you may have heard a stricter, stricter position. And indeed, there is a strict position that says that we don't want to encourage single women to go to the mikvah because we would be giving an imprimatur of sin. Let, let me give you an example from the secular world, totally secular, nothing to do with Judaism. You know, when there was the AIDS epidemic, which seems to be a little, I don't know, seems to be a little less. I don't hear as much about it today. So uh, the AIDS or HIV virus is spread in two, two different ways. One is intravenous drug use. You get it from the drug needles that are dirty. And the other is unprotected sexual intercourse. So a lot of public schools in the United States were contemplating passing out free condoms because people were having sexual relationships anyway, and they were getting AIDS, this way I'll give them a condom, which minimizes this. Uh, some were even talking about, not in high school level, but at adult levels, giving out free drug needles, so you're not, you don't have to use a dirty, a contaminated needle. Now, on one hand, this would reduce the spread of AIDS, but you're reducing the spread of AIDS by encouraging destructive behaviors, whether it's, it's not drug
2: encouraging use. if it's already
0: happening. Well, it's happening, but the question is, are you kind of officially making it kosher? So, you have a parallel. I'm just drawing a parallel. You have a parallel here. Single women, are not, single women or men, I don't mean women or men, are not supposed to have relations outside of marriage. That's the, Jew, that's the Jewish rule. So, for me to say, oh, you're a single woman having sex, uh, go ahead and go to the mikveh, uh, you know, that, that would be kind of, on one level, legitimating something that Judaism says is not proper. On the other hand, it is also achieving a very positive goal because it is preventing a greater avera, greater sin, from taking place. It's very parallel a little bit to the condom and to the uh, intravenous drug needle issue in which you're kind of maybe encouraging an improper behavior, but in order to prevent a greater danger from from happening. So, if you heard that, yes, there there is such a halachic position, but there's also another halachic position. Now, the way some rabbis finesse it is they will not allow publicly, they will not uh, publicly post a sign that says, single women can go to the mikveh. They will not allow it, but they will do it uh, under the table, so to speak. They will allow it on a private, individual, one-to-one basis they will not endorse it as a public policy.
2: But after wasn't considered... it's not... like, if they're living together, they're not... like, because of, like, being married... Yeah. ...it's not considered to be, a like, not keeping to the laws of family period. No,
0: that's not... That that, that that much is not true. That 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 is not but a true... Is that is not a true, as as uh, a true statement. Uh, even a single woman, if she goes to the mikveh uh, after the requisite seven days, no longer has the, stig- the, the problem of Nida. So clearly uh, she can fulfill the laws of family purity even as a single Without woman.
2: Without being married.
0: That, that is correct. That's, the only problem is we don't want to encourage it because it may encourage premarital uh, relations.
3: Yeah. So in this situation, both of them shouldn't be sleeping together. That's correct. But she doesn't actually, like the whole Tahara issue... Yeah. is on him, right? He can't sleep with her while she's in a state of nida,
0: but um, she. Okay. But like,
3: is she going to the mikvah really for his sake? Is that
0: no, no, that's, that's, that's well, well, that's not really true because the the prohibition
3: mm-hmm. of
0: marital intercourse in a state of nida yeah. is a prohibition both on the man and on the woman.
2: Okay, that's right. like Shabbos. Okay.
0: <laughs> the the punishment the sin is both is on both equally.
2: Okay. Yep. So do yep.
1: you? to go to the mikvah every
0: time you have sex? Or is it just... When you say you, you do you mean uh, a man or just anyone? I mean... No, 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 no. No, the is not. Women or men do not have to go to the mikvah uh, after sexual intercourse. Uh, The requirement of nidah is only for menstruation. When a woman has her monthly period... So then she has to count at least seven days. It wants it to be twelve days, and then she goes to and for those twelve days, husband and wife are abstinent, and then she goes to the mikvah and then they're reunited. Uh, the sexual relations they have uh, until the next period, there is no requirement of going to the mikvah for that. So
2: you're okay. saying with uh,
3: for men to go to
1: go unmarried, like an unmarried couple, if they
3: are having sex. Yeah. that the woman should still observe need well, of? Well, that's, that's what
0: I'm saying. I'm saying okay, that uh, when she gets her period, there should be 12 days of abstinence. Now, as I say, there are two arguments there. One argument is we shouldn't be telling single women that or single men that because that encourages or that, that implies we're giving a heksher, so to speak, a kosher supervision to something improper. The other argument is, well, no, you're stopping the commission of a much greater Sin. So this is a, an interesting question that you can actually see the two, two uh, arguments uh, for it. And that's why different rabbanim and different poskim uh, go different ways, uh, different ways on this. Uh, but I know I myself had occasion at least once uh, to encourage a single couple. Uh, to, it's not just the woman, it's the, the man and the woman to observe Torah and Mishpacha and to uh, have the woman go to the, the mikvah.
2: Uh, yeah based on the first question I asked? Yeah. Is a, is a uh, woman who was in a non halakhic marriage required to
0: cover her hair? Ah, that, that's, that's mm-hmm. fascinating. Uh, we didn't really talk about uh, covering hair, is just to give a, a little background. I'm not going to give a whole on it now. I'll mm-hmm. save it for another time. But as you, as you know, there is a halakha. <clears throat> although many even Orthodox people don't keep it, and, and that's unfortunate, uh, but right. there is a halakha that married uh, women, married women, are supposed to have their hair covered, at least when they're in public. Again, in the house, you don't have to be that strict, although some are even there, but publicly, the hair should be covered. It can be covered in different ways. Some prefer a wig called the sheitel in Yiddish, and others prefer specifically not a wig. Now, the Rebbe himself held that the proper covering was a wig because a wig is the most complete covering. But in my neighborhood, if you read the wall posters around, you will see that some people condemn wigs because they it say must, it, looks, yes. it looks too much like hair and it has to, has to be a, uh, what's called a tichel, a kerchief, or a big hat, or whatever. So how you cover it, we'll, we'll leave it for another time. Uh, but this is the only law of tzniot, of modesty, that differentiates the married women and single women. Very interesting. Every other law of modesty, we never say... Married people this, single people this. The the laws are the same. Skirt, knees, all those different things. The only law of modesty that differentiates between married and single is head covering. Single women do not cover their hair. Married women cover their hair. So the question that you're asking, just repeating your question, excellent question. What if people are married, but it's a non-halachic marriage, or they're just living together, is there any halacha of covering hair. Uh, the simple answer is there should not be, because it really depends very much on marrying. On the other end, some people are, some people are strict. So once again, I hate to always have the same cop-out answer, but it is machlokas. because <laughs> yeah,
2: it's interesting, because my mom, she's never covered her hair, but when she like, lights candles or something, like, she always puts
0: something on her head. Yeah. Well, that's proper. You'll, you'll see that a lot, uh, that when women go to uh, shoals, yeah, even if they it. don't cover their hair they'll often put some covering and you know that, that's an appropriate similar similar to a, a man wearing a kippah, and that's an appropriate uh, custom but uh, as I say, uh, the chi of the obligation of covering hair uh, does apply even outside of show but only in public places technically it does not apply in the home
1: yeah so Going off of that, like my mom's Jewish and my dad's not, so yep. in that case, yes. should she still cover her hair because she's still uh, married? But,
0: yeah, like, I, you know, I understand. I, so I, I would say I would say not because uh, it's not uh, she's not with someone to whom a halachic marriage at this point would be possible. So I, I think uh, that's okay. Uh, in fact, even the Taira Tamish thing wouldn't wouldn't apply in the case like that. When I had mentioned before. That even people who are not married should keep tiharat hamishpacha. That would be two Jews. A, a Jew with a non-Jew does not have to worry about that. But I
2: thought the obligation is on the woman and
0: the man. Yes, that's true. But but but, when, but once again, the, uh, the prohibition is only with a Jewish partner. And there that's was the uh, yeah. When you said that there was a case that you was yeah. With a
2: couple who yeah yeah. They eventually
0: got married, yeah. Yeah, so I'm yeah.
2: saying, why, not, why, if you're convincing someone to keep the laws of family purity, not go
0: on the basis of, like, why don't you just get married? Oh, of course, no, 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 of course. I, I, don't, yeah, I, don't, I don't mean to suggest that the first thing you tell them is, uh, hey, you know, go to the micro." Uh, obviously, <laughs> if they're interested in becoming religious, so the first thing you tell them is you encourage them to get married. Yeah, obviously, you, you try to work with that. But if for whatever reason they say, well, I'm sorry, we're just not going to get married for a year. This is the way it is. And you can't convince them. So then uh, plan B would be, well, at least go to the mikvah even as single. Yeah, I, I wasn't suggesting, but that's the first thing
2: and then you said. what would the laws be for someone who they're not allowed to be
0: Yeah, these are such interesting questions. But even then, it's the same situation, even then I would say, okay, you're not allowed to be together, but at least don't be a nida, because if you're a nida, the sin is worse. The sin is worse. Meaning to say, a person who has relations when he and his wife are in a state of nida is worse than a kohen with a divorcee, and therefore you still go back to the idea of minimizing the prohibition. They tell the story, so I'll tell you an interesting story. They tell the story, uh, you may have heard of the great Rabbi Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, who uh, he, he created what's called the Musser Movement, which was a movement in Europe about ethical development. What did they say? I think the Hasidim say Hashem has pity on the Misnagdim, so he wanted to give them a Hasidic-like tzaddik. So he gave them Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. Right? So the Hasidim... Uh, are they, they, they consider Absalantar in very high, high esteem. So uh, he spent, for part of his life, he was in Germany when there were very, very few religious Jews, and he was living in Königsberg. Königsberg was a port on the North Sea, and all of the longshoremen were Jewish. Longshoremen are the big, strong guys that load and unload ships. And the busiest day at any port happens to be Saturday. I'm not sure why it's that way, but Shabbos is the busiest day. So all of these longshoremen were mechalo Shabbos. They were violating Shabbos every week. They were obviously not religious. What he did was, he taught the longshoremen how to do the work with a shinoi, a little bit of a deviation in an unusual way. And that downgrades the activity from a Torah violation to a rabbinic violation. So even though they were sinning, he wanted to help them minimize their prohibition. So that's a similar idea to this. By the way, uh, I don't know if anyone here is Spartan. Anyone here is Spartan? So I'm not going to give a big compliment to Spartan. Uh, Jews are not big in the longshoremen business. We tend to be lawyers or accountants. We, we tend not to be longshoremen. But there were two ports in Europe that had Jewish longshoremen. One was Königsberg in Germany and the other was Salonika in Greece. And the, 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 the longshoremen in Salonika were all Svartic. The port in Salonika was closed on Shabbos because the Svartic longshoremen just refused to work. Right. So As opposed to the Ashkenazim in Königsberg where they worked on Shabbos, uh, uh, Salonika was the only port in Europe that literally was closed on Saturday because the longshoremen refused to work. Yeah.
3: For someone who is working you know, seven days a week or, or is scheduled for shifts on Shabbos and is getting more interested in keeping halakha but feels like, right now I can't not work on Shabbos, would you also then tell them that, like, when you're at work, maybe don't write if you don't have to? Like, you would still encourage a person to
0: Absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> that's the case. You know, it's, it's so fundamentally important to understand in Judaism. Uh, a half is better than a whole and a quarter is... I mean, I'm sorry, a half is better than nothing. A quarter is better than nothing. Uh, whatever you can do, you can do. Uh, even if you're going to go to work, make Kiddush before you go to work. Even oh. if you're going to go to the movies Friday night, light Shabbos candles. I mean, this is certainly Chabad's approach, and this is some light Shabbos before it's it <laughs> dark. Don't, don't light it after it's it dark. <laughs> Meaning, whatever mitzvah you do, I think Voltaire once said, it's a very, very smart saying, that unfortunately the best is the enemy of the better. Now, think of what that means. Sometimes you have this idea that things have to be perfect. And if they're not perfect, what's the use of doing anything? Meaning, this idea that it has to be the best is the enemy of making things better. In reality, whatever you do is treasured and cherished and beloved by God. So even if somebody is working on Shabbos, by all means, make kiddush, daven, say something, don't smoke, uh, let's say, take on something, and that counts for a tremendous amount. Yeah, uh, yeah.
3: Um, so I have a, this is like a practical question. I don't know if it's, yeah. tell me if it's too far off the class. Um, I have a grandmother who will often visit us on Friday, and leave yeah. within the last hour, depending on when Shabbos comes in. Sometimes she's leaving like within an hour of when Shabbos is about to come out. Oh, come that's,
0: in. that's so bad. Yeah, just another hour, yeah. Right, yeah.
3: But, but that's how it is. And okay. so this is like a practical question we have, is like, should we encourage her to light Shabbos candles, then she'll be, then she'll like take in Shabbos and be driving on Shabbos. Or should we say, don't light Shabbos candles, and she's driving, she might still be driving on Shabbos, meaning Shabbos might come in while she's driving, she might get there, and then, Shabbos comes in and then she lights candles after because she'll light at home. Yeah. I mean, in any case, she's not keeping the rest of Shabbos. No, that's,
0: that's a very, that's a very, very, tricky, that's a very tricky thing. That
3: might be um
0: Because if, if by lighting Shabbos candles, you'll be causing her to take an extra drive, then it might be better not to tell her to light Shabbos candles. Right. On the other hand, if she's going to be driving anyway when it's Shabbos, then she should light Shabbos candles because it's, it's a benefit. You're going to have to try to assess her timetable to get a sense of... Of what, of what it is it's, again, that's, that's a hard question yeah.
1: you mentioned that kosher wedding is more on the kosher
3: witnesses rather yep. than like, the kosher not the rabbi and stuff. Right. but what about like a kasuba like if, if you have kosher witnesses but not the contract like if the kasuba is written, okay
0: so this is, is what I mentioned. I mentioned this is a complicated thing I had mentioned a few weeks ago the concept that a marriage may be halakhically valid even if it's not halakhically permitted it is not permitted for a man and a woman to live together unless they have a ketuba. Meaning they must write a ketubah immediately or get a immediately. However, the lack of a ketuba does not invalidate the marriage. So if we had kosher witnesses that saw the chassan give the kala a ring and say, behold, you are betrothed to me, they are a married couple even though they're not allowed to live together until they do a kasuva. So the kasuva is essential, but it's not essential to validity. Do you get that difference here? It is essential to the permissibility of a relationship, but it is not essential to the validity of a, a relationship. Okay. All righty, so uh, again, these are all very, very good questions, and uh, you know, hopefully uh, you can see that uh, life is a little complicated. And there's not always gonna be a single answer. Uh, and uh, the philosophy here is on one hand, we want to minimize the violations of Hashem's Torah. On the other hand, we don't want to encourage people to do things that are not, not proper. Yeah.
2: So I know there's a difference between like biblical commandments versus rabbinic like yeah. commitments. But within there, that within like biblical commandments are there like there has to be like the the
0: there hierarchy. is a hierarchy uh, because the hierarchy is primarily measured by the punishments that the Torah gives for the offenses for example for the laws of nida the Torah says there is death in the hands of heaven meaning god i mean uh, we don't execute a person but but god you know declares that that person's soul will be cut cut off for the other prohibitions like living, with, living together without living together without marriage that is not the penalty right? so as a result that's why I've, I've been saying that even within the level of Torah laws we measure something by the severity of the prohibition that,
2: that Is that, that in Shikon, like the uh,
0: Well it's codified in the Torah itself oh. uh, yeah, yeah it is but in the sh- is there like a place
2: where it's like this
0: is the worst? Yes, 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 yes it is It is. Uh, but as I say the punishments are in the Torah itself right, right. Okay. Good news is that if a person does tshuva, a person repents, then all of these sentences of cutting off are, 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 are dissolved. They go they, yeah. they go away, they go away. Uh, but other, other than that, it's a very, very severe thing, yeah?
1: And why does Pirkei Avot say that you shouldn't hold one mitzvah in higher regard than another, like you don't know the actual reward? Yeah,
0: that's an excellent question, and that, that's a, a famous question, right? Pirkei Avot says just, people who didn't hear, that uh, you should be as careful with uh, what you think is an easier mitzvah or a less significant mitzvah as you are with the most severe mitzvahs because you don't know what the reward is. You might think uh, something is unimportant and it's very, very important. But I think the short answer is that the Pirkei Avos is referring to positive commandments as opposed to negatives. You see, the tirade does not give you a system of punishment for failure to do positive commandments. In other words, if I don't say Shema, uh, you know, I, don't know what the, I don't know what God is gonna hold me accountable for. So Pirkei says, you just don't know. So you can't make a judgment what you think is more important. But when it comes to the negatives, thou shalt not, there the Torah does give me a hierarchy. And if it gives me a hierarchy, so I kind of know, you know which is the more severe, which is the less severe so we would differentiate Avot is referring to the mitzvot assay, the positive commandments as opposed to the negative, negative commandments um, that, that would be one answer but I think that would, that, would, that would be it we certainly have to make the judgments all the time I'll, I'll give you another example you have to make these judgments uh, let's say God forbid somebody has to eat has to eat on uh, on, uh, on Yom Kippur because their life is in danger they, they have to eat, there's a mitzvah to eat, no problem but you have two different ways you could feed them. You could give them... The only food you have that's already cooked is trafe. It's chazer. You have a pork, pork chop. Or you could, shecht, <laughs> you could shecht an animal and cook it uh, as kosher. So there, you're certainly allowed to violate the Torah, but, but you have to figure out which is the lesser prohibition. Right? So you have to make judgments, which is a lesser thing. Uh, when somebody could be uh, accommodated with a lesser Avera, you have to do the lesser rather than the greater. right? So you do have those judgments all the time.
2: What's uh, the answer to that? The, the answer
0: to that shortly is we actually say better to violate Yom Kippur by shechting <laughs> than to give the person treif. Because treif affects the neshama uh, in a very negative way. Can
1: you talk
0: about this in some Oh, yeah. you, so, you talk about that? Okay. Gore,
1: like... Slaughtering on Shabbos. Or to Shabbos, take you don't Because, like, something. one bite of unkosher.
0: That, that's is right.
1: I mean, it's worse than It's life.
0: worse. Well, the reason is because is with non kosher, every bite is a sin. Every bite is a sin. With shechting, it's one action. I just did one sin. With non kosher, I do a hundred sins. So, you see, we, we're making these judgments all the time.
2: Well, what, is prep, what is the crap of the meat also? Huh? Like, the actual act of slaughtering. Yes. It might only be one
0: act. Yeah. The whole process of preparing meals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, sorry, yeah. so I, have to, I have to qualify. So in my hypothetical, you would have to do that to the non-kosher meat as well. Meaning to say, you have a piece of non-kosher raw meat. Okay. So, oh, you're gonna, gonna, so you're going to so have to do the cooking wow. on either on both of them. So at that point, the only difference is <laughs> eating the non-kosher versus slaughtering the, the kosher. Or isn't there
2: another thing where it's like having a, a goy to the animal versus having a Theme, but even if it's a kosher
1: animal. Oh, that, that's yeah.
0: a good—that's that, a good question. The problem is, mm, the problem is if a guy, okay, I'm not sure what you you're gaining there. Like the a guy shechting the, the animal, the animal is treif. Right,
2: right. Yeah. So, it's, like the so, exact so it's the same. So it's the same. Tell how to salt it, how to do it. Right,
0: right, 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 right. So right. So Remember, a guy, a guy who shechts an animal, the animal cannot be eaten. That's it's it's it's, it's treif. But it would be, be the same issue as as treif. Right, right. That, that, that's correct. Okay. Alrighty. So now uh, let me just mention a, a miscellaneous uh, issue two miscellaneous issues. One, this is really out of the blue, I'm just mentioning it because I I brought it up in another share, so I figured it's an interesting little tshuva to hear of. All of you know, now I'm getting ahead of the marriage, talking about after childbirth, right? We have two ceremonies for uh, babies, uh, for baby boys. Uh, One is the bris at eight days, we just read about it in last week's Torah reading. And the other, if it's a firstborn child, there is a ceremony called Pidyon Haben. Pidyon Haben means the redeeming of the firstborn because all of the firstborn Israelites were sanctified in Egypt when God spared them and killed the firstborn of the Egyptians. and Therefore, uh, they should have been the priests of Hashem, but that job was taken over by the Kohanim. So essentially, we have to redeem our firstborn child by giving money Five silver dollars, the equivalent to the Kohen. And it's a very funny ritual. Uh, this is when the baby is 30 days old. Actually, it's the 31st day. 30 days have passed, thirty full days, and the 31st day. The Nusach, the text of Pidyon Aben, actually has the, the, the Kohen, you get a Kohen, asking the father, what do you want more? Do you prefer to hold on to your son and give me the five silver dollars, wow. or would you rather keep the silver dollars? So, the father is given a choice.
2: What if he chooses the money?
0: Yeah, you know, I, it's interesting. I've never seen that, but that would be, <laughs> that <stuff. laughs> that would be the a nice... The no, but
2: okay,
3: like, if, yeah. it be, if you're given a choice, it is something that happens once you make the choice. Which the well, I, 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 assume,
0: I assume dad can change his mind. Mom is probably going to get upset, you know, but, uh, but, but as I say, th- th- there is an answer. In the sitter, the answer is supposed to be I want to keep my son and here is the money pigeon haben. Now pigeon haben is a little complicated.
2: So what's the Congo gonna do with the baby? If that's, what was,
0: yeah. uh, that's, yeah. a, good, that's a good question. Did you have a choice Yeah. Yeah, it's not it's not in t- yeah. But let me just point out that pigeon haben is complicated because in order to be a firstborn there could not have been prior miscarriages or the like because if there were... Because the way the Torah describes it, this is the child that opens up the mother's womb. So even if there were some prior births that were not live births even, whether it was abortion, whether it was miscarriage, uh, the halakha generally is that there's no pidyon haben for the next one because it's not the one that opens up the womb. By the way, for the same reason, there is no pigeon ben on a cesarean delivery. Because a cesarean comes out of the side, it doesn't come out of the what out if, of the womb.
2: If yeah, one of them first died.
0: Uh, so if, if there were twins, there could be there could be a pigeon on. It, depends, it actually depends which one came out first. Anyways. what if
3: one of them died?
0: Yes, yeah, so it depends which one came out first, uh, meaning what meaning Okay. If the one that came out first died, there's no pigeon of ben. If the one that came out first is alive, there would be. So here is the question. Here's a I'm, yeah, I'm sorry.
1: If a couple's first son it comes from a cesarean, yeah. and then they have another son, does that son? have Yeah, a excellent question. But
0: there's no pigeon up ben because because there are two requirements. You have to come out of the womb and you have to be the firstborn. So so as a result, uh, if you come after if, if a boy comes after a cesarean, even though he's the one that opened the womb.
3: It's not the first yes, so point.
0: There are two conditions, yeah. before and, and peter rech. Yeah. Um, what about,
3: so sometimes miscarriages are not so obvious, especially like in the first...
0: Okay, so, so again, I, 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 was, I, I oversimplified. Uh, the only type of miscarriage mm-hmm. that will take away a pigeon aben from the next baby is when the fetus was sufficiently developed that there were recognizable arms and legs, appendages. So any miscarriage that was so early that you didn't have that type of recognizable fetal development doesn't count and the next one could have a pigeon event, right? So that's why a lot of the early miscarriages, which a woman might not even be fully aware, would not would not count for this.
3: Okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I have another question, like not exactly to Pidyon Ben, but could you talk about
0: Shalom Zachor and where that... Yes, I'll, I'll get to that, but, but, but I want to talk wow. about Pidyon Ben because I want to bring in an interesting question that Ravaji Yosef was asked. Many of you may have heard of Ravaji Yosef. He was a great, great, great Sephardic rabbi who died around uh, maybe three, four years ago. His funeral was still the largest ever, ever, ever. 800,000 people. You know, funerals of great rabbis have had inflation. I remember when there was 100,000 that people said, oh, amazing, 100,000. Then it was 200,000. This, like, broke the bank because I think the next one is only half a million, right? So this created kind of a Guinness Book of World Records uh, funeral uh, attendance. Great, great rabbi. And this was the Shaila that he was asked. I'm not sure how it came to him and I'm not sure about the timing. There was a woman who uh, grew up non-religious. And she was uh, sleeping with a guy guy, and she got pregnant and she had an abortion, first trimester abortion. Okay, tragic, it happens. She then becomes very, very religious and she marries a very devout rabbinic student. And then she gets pregnant. And the rabbinic student keeps on talking about the fact, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if we have a boy and the boy will not only have a pigeon aben, will not only have a bris, but will have a pigeon haben. but she never told her husband that she had an abortion and technically therefore if she has a, uh, a male bukhar there's no pigeon haben here why not because she, because she had it because she had a baby she, she had an abortion
2: but you say, it's a, it's a, Yeah. did not specified what say, uh, but if it was
0: no, no, so it depends... Well, early so means you don't have the fetal development of arms and legs, but this okay. was yeah, after... So if you
2: had the
1: abortion no, no, you're
0: right. If it would have been that... If it been that fa- yeah, you're correct, that wouldn't throw it off. That's correct. That's but I'm true. talking about she had an abortion. Like I mean, mean, abortion is not going to be different than a stillbirth, meaning uh, the, the, right. the, the, the baby was developed. It had its arms and legs. Right. It was at the end, towards the end of the first trimester. Gotcha. Right? So, so the problem is... If she doesn't tell her husband, and they have a pigeon up in, then all of the blessings that are going to be recited are going to be blessings in vain, which is a big avera, to say, take God's name in vain. But if she tells her husband, that's going to cause you know a lot of animosity, a lot of embarrassment, a lot of humiliation. So what is the halakha in such a case? So Ravaja Yosef actually ruled, amazingly enough, that in order to spare shame and humiliation, she does not have to disclose this. And even though that means that the whole pigeon event is essentially a fake ceremony, nobody knows that it's fake, but it's fake. Now, a fake pigeon event is not a problem per se, except for the blessings. But the brachos are all blessings in vain. But Ravavajya ruled that in order to spare humiliation and embarrassment, it is permitted to cause blessings to be recited in, in vain. This was his decision. Now he did say, if she has a way of getting out of it in another way, she could say, for example, she could, if somehow she could tell her husband she had a prior miscarriage from him, again, you know, he would know about it, You know, something like that, then that's the best way to get out of it, even though she'd be lying, but that's Mutter. Uh, but if there's no other way to get out of it, he says she doesn't have to say anything and she can allow the aben to go Forward. Yeah.
1: Must it be the firstborn child or it's if you have a daughter and then a son? No,
0: it has to be the firstborn child, which would mean that uh, if uh, there was a daughter and then a son, there's no pigeon up uh, end for the son. That's why pigeon up is relatively uncommon. I think statistically, if you figure out all of the permutations, uh, cesareans, miscarriages, first child, uh, a girl, etc. So, I think pigeon up is only like one in every five births uh, gets a pigeon up That's kind of the statistic of it.
2: Yeah. Um, the reason we do it is um, because the child would have been a cohen, right? Yeah. What if the child is born and he would, anyways, be unfit to serve? Uh, yes. Yeah, so like, I know we still have them,
0: but why? No, we do it anyway because, because keep in mind, it's a little complicated. If the firstborn would have been the Kohen, he would not have all of the laws that apply to Kohen. The laws that apply to right. before Kohen oh, okay. are okay. not the laws that apply to Kohen Kohen. You see? Now, because of this, keep in mind that there is no Aben if either the father or the mother is a Kohen or a Levi. This is actually a rare situation where the female status is actually important as well. So if the child is born, from a father that's a Cohen, or a father that's a lady, or a mother that's a Cohen, or a mother that's a lady. There is also no pigeon of him. Doesn't
3: she lose that status if she marries? Like, yeah, she for, for, for,
0: mo- marries for mo- most purposes she, she does. Yeah. Yeah. But the only exception where she does not lose the status wait, 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 of Bas Cohen so or Bas Levi is pigeon Aben.
3: Pidgin. But the children are definitely... definitely they're not Kohanim, for, sure for sure not. And they don't, they don't continue to carry that? No, no, no,
0: no. They're Yisraelim, and when they have children, they'll be a of Aben. But, but she is but a, a Basque Lady and there's no pigeon Aben. Okay? All right. All right. So since you asked me about Sholem Zohar, let me mention that a little bit. Yeah. Sorry,
3: so much.
2: Yep.
1: And I had asked you about this before, like anything that happens with the Ba Kohen, and I, th- I thought you mentioned something about like a payment. Is there something kind of payment that happens with the Pidyon HaBen?
0: Oh, yes, yes, yes. What happens basically is the ceremony is, the, this is in the Torah, uh, the, the, the father must give to the Kohen what are called five cellas. That's the coin that the Torah specifies. And that would be essentially the, the weight of the five silver dollars. That's That's what's given. And uh, that, that affects the redemption. The, the, the father gives to the Kohen uh, those silver coins. Now, the Kohen is permitted to give it back to him. In fact, what often happens is, many Kohanim bring their own silver coins. The way it works is the following. Uh, they bring the silver coins, they give it to the father to give back to them, and then the Kohen will reuse it the next time he does a pigeon event. That, that's often how it works. But technically, it has to at least momentarily belong to the father, who gives it to the Kohen. Okay? That's what it means, redemption. You redeeming the firstborn. Now, bris, Mila, circumcision, and uh, Pidyon abend, they're in the Torah. They are mitzvos in the Torah that must be done when the conditions apply. Now, there are other things that are not in the Torah, and they're not even rabbinic, but they are minhagim, they are customs. Right? They're not the same thing. And one of the customs that is very prevalent is something called a Shalom Zochor. Shalom Zochor means greeting the, the male son. I'll talk about why, why not for a daughter, or maybe I for a daughter. And Shalom Zochor basically means the first Friday night, it's always Friday night, the first Friday night after the child's birth, we make a celebration, usually in the parent's home, but it could be in someone else's home if that's more convenient, where they serve, you know, cake and soda, whatever it is. And we kind of have a ceremony that welcomes the son to the world. Now, technically, people don't realize this, technically, if the son and the mother or the, just the son is in the hospital, the shalom Zahra should be where the baby is. The shalom should be in the hospital. That's not what people do. People will make it in the home. But technically, it should follow the baby because it's to welcome the baby.
3: But you should, yeah. if you can't like we had that situation that the baby yeah. my brother was born on Friday so he said yeah. my mom were both in the hospital but there's no Jewish community yeah. where that hospital is alright
0: so you make it wherever you make it but, but, but optimally it would be where meaning
3: the, it's still better to do it it's still better to do it better to do better it, to do it
0: than house. not to do it Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. now let me just say the origin of Shalom zachar is a very interesting origin and it's based on the famous Gemara that I'm sure you've heard that's actually the Tanya the very first uh, line of Tanya is alluding to this teaching, although he does not quote it in its entirety. Remember the first line of Tanya, the before Neshama is born, he takes an oath to be a tzaddik and not to be a rasha, right? The first mm-hmm. line of Tanya. But before that line, it mentions that the baby in the womb is taught the whole Torah by an angel. And that's when the angel makes him swear. That, that statement he swears is the next line after this and when the baby is born our tradition is the angel smites him on the lip that's why you have this indentation over your lip and you forget everything that you learned and the baby however remembers that that he lost something that's why he cries and the Shalom Zachar is to comfort him for the sadness of losing all the Torah that he had learned. Now the obvious question you could ask yourself is, what's the purpose of teaching him all of this Torah if it's taken away from him? He's born without knowing anything. The answer is, the information is lost, but it entered his godly soul. And therefore, that whole, the, the receptivity of his neshama to holiness is because it was imprinted with the will of God, which is the Torah. And therefore, even if you forget the actual information, yeah, you forgot the information, but it's part of your essence. But he needs to be comforted. Yeah?
2: So
1: if you had twins, yes. and either mm-hmm. two boys or a boy and a girl, and you managed to
0: first of them, naturally. Yeah. Would a pigeon event be like so It would depend on the first one, meaning you'd literally have to know which came out first. Uh, if daughter came out first, there is no pigeon event. And if son came out first, assuming it's not a cesarean, there would be a pigeon event. Yeah, that's correct. You'd literally have to be aware, be aware of this. Now, Spardin have... They don't do it Friday night, Badafka. They have a welcoming ceremony for a daughter as well. And that goes by a different name, Zeved Habas. Zeved is providing for a, a daughter. So Ashkenazim have Shalom Zohar, Sephardim have both Shalom Zohar and Zeved Habas. Ashkenazim don't do it, but they make a kiddish. They Why do make not? a kiddish. What's
2: the difference? They
0: connect the simcha of Shalom Zacher also to the Bris Mila. They connect it to Bris. Um, I'll tell you a famous story. This is a famous story uh, about uh, a man who had a daughter who uh, was getting up in age. She was already 25 and wasn't married. That's bnei brak. That's like old old maid. <laughs> And uh, a, person went, a person went to uh, the stipler, Chaim Konevsky's father, a great, great goddle, and said, Oy vey, you know, my daughter's not getting married. What do I do? So the stipler said, Did you make a kiddish when your daughter was born? He said, No, I didn't make a kiddush. Uh, he says, You should do that. Why? Because when you make a kiddish, celebrating the birth of a girl... Everybody goes over to you and say, may she be Zocha to find a chosan. Even though she's just born. And you never know who Hashem has chosen to be the conduit of divine blessing. And you shut off the possibility of those conduits. Now the girl is 25, I think maybe she was even 30. Make a kiddush now, in honor of her birth. So he makes a kiddush uh, people think, why are you making a kiddush? Well, in honor of my daughter's birthday. She's 30 years old. And people say, oh, may she get a chassan." And she got engaged very shortly afterwards. So there is a concept of making a kiddish for a daughter. And that's considered to be a source of blessing. In fact, the Ramban writes a famous question. You know, in this week's Parsha, uh, Sarah laughs when she hears she's going to have a kid, a son. She laughs. How can that be? And the angels are angry. Hashem is angry. Why is Sarah laughing? Does she not believe that Hashem could give her a child? Now, people ask the question, wait a second here. Sarah does not think this was said by Hashem. Sarah sees three, they're angels, but what does she she think they are? They're like Arab travelers. They're simple, you know, they're idol worshipers. So, Why should Sarah give any credence at all to what these three strangers are saying? They're not again, as far as she could see. So the Ramban says the following, an amazing thought, that when someone gives you a bracha, even if you think they're unworthy, even if you think they're idol worshippers, even if you think they're nobodies, you always say amen to it. Because you never know who Hashem has chosen to be the Tsinor. Tsinor is the pipe. The Tsinor for Bracha. So it's not that she heard it from Hashem and she didn't believe. If she, it, if she would have heard it from Hashem, she, of course she would have believed. She heard it from people that she thought, or, you know, she thought they were people who were nobodies. But so what? So what? Maybe Hashem chose the nobody. In this case, these were angels, right? Maybe the nobody is an angel. You know, you never know who Hashem has chosen. Yeah
2: with like a group of, like, Christian people and are like, saying grace. Mm-hmm.
0: Are you, should you say amen to them? Uh, yeah, that that's that's a tricky question. It really depends on it depends on what they said. Meaning if they just said God, yeah. you say you can say Amen to them. Uh, if they say Yashka or the like, yeah. uh, you do not do not you cannot answer Amen to it.
1: Is there some kind of like Kabbalistic or some explanation <laughs> yeah. related to like cleft palates?
0: Uh I, I did not hear a particular one Did you hear some, some explanation of why, why it happened? About what? A cleft palate
1: oh,
2: I was, I was Are you suggesting
0: that it's different than some other, some other medical condition? I mean there are a lot of medical conditions
1: Just in the relation to the like Oh I'm sorry, connected
0: to that Hmm that's interesting. I don't know if you think about it. In other words, maybe it's uh, got hit a little harder. Now, they tell the story. I, I don't know. This may be above a Misa. But they tell the story that some children are, were born without this uh, indentation. And they were born as newborns, mumbling, mumbling verses from the Torah. Really? And even Gemara. <laughs> are you serious? They were mumbling, yeah, because uh, the Torah wasn't taken away from them. So they were just, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, 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 and what happens in all of these cases is that uh, it's like a recall there was a mistake so the kid like always dies Dies like uh, an hour later but they say that there were such cases where saying Torah was born and then he was just dying I, I've heard this as a story I don't know if it's true I, I, I'm not even sure it's, I'm not at all sure it's true but the Martin's they
3: are like taking it away so why can't have it
0: Ah, so that's an interesting point. So why do Goyim have it? First of all, you see that women have it. Obviously, women are learning Torah too. That's one thing to keep in mind. Apparently, the concept is even non-Jews learn Torah, but not the Torah, the Jewish Torah, but they learn the seven commandments of Noah and all of those laws. So they learn, uh, they also have Torah that they learn, uh, as it were. Okay, all right, you all be well. Have a good, good week. And uh, we'll see you Okay.